Well, we have been um, working our way through over the last seven weeks, or the last six weeks, this is the seventh week, through the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what we said, the Sermon on the Mount is like Discipleship 101 for Christ followers. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples very early in his ministry when he was talking about the kingdom of God and what it means to walk as a disciple or a follower of his. Three weeks ago in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we read Jesus' statement to his disciples, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Over the past three weeks, we examined Jesus' teaching about the kind of righteousness that surpasses, surpasses, I can say that word, I think, the righteousness of the Jewish religious leaders. In other words, we've been examining the kind of attitudes and actions found in the lives of those who submit to God's kingdom rule, who choose to follow Jesus, those who are increasingly becoming a city on a hill. We considered six examples of greater righteousness or higher standards of the kingdom. They dealt with anger, sexual purity and lust, marriage and divorce, oaths and integrity of speech, the call to forsake personal retaliation, and loving and praying for our enemies. Last week, we um, G- we, we ended with Jesus' words, a call to be perfect, just like God, our Heavenly Father, is perfect. Now, we learned that the word perfect used in this command means whole, mature, or complete rather than sinless. When you and I choose to submit to Jesus as Lord, we become kingdom citizens, and a spiritual transformation begins inside of us. This kingdom transformation continues as we choose to keep following Jesus. This inner transformation also produces external acts of righteousness. Another way to say that is good works. The result is that over time, you and I come to look and act more and more like our heavenly father. And the world sees a purer and clearer reflection of God in and through us. For the next chunk of the sermon, Jesus is going to show us how kingdom righteousness works out in the details of three arenas of everyday life. Jesus is very, very practical. He's going to talk about how kingdom righteousness works out in public religious life, personal interior life, and then interpersonal relational life. Today, we're going to consider Jesus' words about what kingdom righteousness looks like in public religious life. Jesus addresses three external acts. They are giving to the poor, public prayer, and fasting. In this teaching, Jesus tells us why we do what we do matters. I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and we're going to read together what Jesus has to say about our public religious life and about these three things, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. 
So I'm going to start reading the parts that say worship leader, WL. Some of those verses are marked all. So on those verses, I'm going to ask you to join me as we read aloud. I get to go first. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our father in heaven... Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thank you. Please be seated. All three of Jesus' examples of public piety, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting, have a parallel message. The message is that Jesus' disciples must not do these things to impress others. If disciples parade their piety or show off their good deeds... Any spiritual benefit is lost. Some of you with keen memories are likely saying, Kent, I'm confused. Didn't Jesus earlier in the sermon say, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works? Yes, he did. 
So is Jesus contradicting himself here? No. The earlier verse said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works. Why? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. In today's passage, Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people. Why? To be seen by them. The difference in the two exhortations is heart motivation. Jesus says why we do what we do matters. Two people can perform the same act of piety with completely different motives. If our good works, our acts of piety are intended to glorify God, then going public is most appropriate and encouraged. But Jesus knows the human heart. He knows our desire to look good in front of others is like an insatiable black hole. Our motives are often tinged or even filled with desire for human affirmation and honor. Because of this, Jesus tells us that some acts of piety are best done in private. The first good work Jesus addresses is giving to the poor. Another word we could use for this is almsgiving. Almsgiving was important in Jewish religious practice. Poverty was widespread in ancient agrarian societies, and there was no public welfare system to assist those who experienced financial hardship. The people of Israel took seriously the obligation to provide for the poor. In Deuteronomy 15.11, God says, For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. The Jewish leaders rightly recognized and responded to the plight of the poor and to to their obligation uh, to provide for the poor through almsgiving. But they did so with wrong heart motives. They made sure that others were aware of their giving. They made a show of it. We would say today that they they tooted their own horn when they gave. Some scholars believe Jesus' words don't sound a trumpet refer to coins being thrown into trumpet-shaped money chests in the temple. Doing so made a lot of clatter and attracted a lot of attention. Like, ooh, he must have given a lot. Jesus called these Jewish leaders hypocrites. The word hypocrite comes from Greek drama, where the actors wore different masks pretending to be various characters. The Jewish leaders were pretenders. They pretended their primary motivation was compassion for the poor. But in reality, they cared more about appearances, about looking godly and compassionate than they did about the needs of others. Jesus says because of their heart attitude, they forfeited any reward they might have received from God. Jesus tells his disciples, when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. What does that mean? It means give in secret. God will see your gift and your heart, and he will reward you for it. God calls us to meet the needs of those facing financial hardship, both within the church and out 
outside it. The early church was known throughout the Roman Empire as the selfless ones who took it upon themselves to feed the poor, house the oppressed, and care for the underprivileged. The list of persons supported by the early church was enormous. They cared for the elderly, for widows, for orphans, for prisoners, those who suffered shipwreck, and those who lost their livelihoods due to their faith. The common descriptor of the first century Christians was that of caring for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed as they would care for their own family. Even the pagan skeptic Julian confessed, the Christians feed not only their poor, their poor, but ours as well. Here's a guy who's not a Christian. He's a, he's a pagan. And, he, and he's recognizing the Christians are different. They care for all the poor, not just the poor inside the church, but the poor in general in society. For more than any other description or characteristic, serving and caring for the poor define the life of an early Christian. How ironic that in the church activity saturated lifestyle of today's average North American Christian, time spent with the poor is conspicuously absent. In the weeks and months ahead, we're going to talk about some practical ways that you and I can increase our care for the poor. But for right now, the important thing is Jesus' point. He's not saying that giving and ministering to the poor is unimportant or should be discontinued. His point is that we should do it with the right motives. We shouldn't toot our own horn and and give to look good in front of others. Because God has met our need, we should, out of gratitude and love for him, meet the needs of others. To ensure we give to the poor with with the right attitude, we should give without broadcasting it. Why we do what we do matters. The second area of piety Jesus discusses is prayer. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, Jesus says, they've got their reward already. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. I don't know if you know this, but pious Jews prayed three times a day at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 a.m. If they were close to the temple, they went there to pray. If not, they prayed wherever they were. This could be done discreetly or it could be done with pretentious display. Some people planned to find themselves at hours of prayer in a place where they would be noticed, such as the market or on a street corner. In those cases, the inner motivation for offering public prayer was public recognition and honor for their spirituality. Another place temptation for grandstanding in prayer played out in Jesus' day was in services in the synagogues. Prayer there was customarily led by a male member of the congregation who stood in front of the Ark of the Law. It would have been very easy to succumb to the temptation of praying up 
to the congregation with acceptable cliches, the appropriate sentiments, sonorous tones, and well-pitched fervency, all to win approval and to compete with the chap who led in prayer last week. The same thing can happen today, even if more subtly. Jesus says, don't let that happen. Now, Jesus is not saying here that it's wrong to pray in public. He says that it's wrong to pray in public with the wrong motivation when we're seeking to impress and look spiritual in front of others. Why we do what we do matters. Jesus continues by uh, saying, don't babble or use vain repetition in your prayers. The word babble indicates a person who repeats the same words over and over without thinking. The priest of Baal continued from morning until noon crying out, we read in the Old Testament, oh Baal, answer us, oh Baal, answer us, oh Baal, answer us. Jesus says that babbling to get God's attention or as some kind of incantation to manipulate him to respond is foolish. Because the father is aware at all times of his children's needs, even before we ask him. Jesus is also not saying that it's wrong to pray long prayers or to pray regularly and repetitively for the same thing. Jesus himself prayed through whole nights. Those were long prayers, brothers and sisters. He also commended in a parable the perseverance of a widow in prayer. You remember when I candidated the sermon I preached on the persistent widow called the parable of don't throw in the towel? Jesus taught in that parable, don't give up, keep praying, keep requesting until you receive an answer from God. Jesus also repeated the same request himself in prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass, pass, pass from me. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is also not saying that that it's inappropriate to ask God for what we need. In verse 11, he clearly teaches his disciples to pray, give us today our daily bread. James tells us that one reason we don't have is because we don't ask. Jesus is telling his disciples don't use flowery, flower, flowery, I don't know, how can you say that word? Flowery, flowery language, you know, foo-foo language, you know, meant to sound good. Or use prayer to provide information to God or others. Have you ever heard somebody pray a prayer and they spend two minutes telling God about things that have been going on, but they're not really talking to him? It's like they're talking to the people. He says, don't do that. Let your prayers to God be simple, direct, and sincere. Jesus then, remember I said Jesus is very practical, he then provides his disciples a model prayer to show them how they should pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but really a more appropriate title would be the model prayer or even the disciples' prayer. Jesus provides the model prayer as an instructional tool to his disciples to contrast the flowery, hypocritical, and vain prayers he commands his disciples to avoid. The prayer is deeply rich in instruction. We could easily spend an entire sermon or even several sermons unpacking it. However, time this morning doesn't allow for this. 
I'm hoping to come back to the prayer sometime in the months ahead as we look at the topic of spiritual disciplines in the life of a disciple. But I do want to note this. Jesus includes in the model prayer a petition asking God for forgiveness of sin. This petition assumes that disciples, you and me, are choosing to forgive others. It says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice this. After the prayer, Jesus repeats this emphasis on the vital importance of forgiving others. He says, for if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. For a disciple of Jesus, forgiveness is not optional. Failure to forgive places us in our own prison Failure to forgive others is likely the biggest hindrance to answered prayer and cuts us off from the flow of God's forgiveness in our own lives. Well, Jesus has commanded his disciples to avoid hypocrisy and grandstanding in giving to the poor and in praying. He now turns to a third act of piety, the act of fasting. Fasting was another important practice in Jewish religious life. It always had a deeper meaning than just abstaining from food. Fasting involves an intentional period of humility and self-denial. And fasting was often associated with preparing oneself spiritually for some significant event. An example of this was Jesus' 40-day fast in the wilderness as he prepared for the start of his public ministry. Fast were sometimes associated with urgent periods of time devoted to discerning God's leading. Examples are Esther's three-day fast um, during a period of national crisis and Paul's three-day fast to seek God's direction after becoming a Christ follower. Fasting was often private, but at times the people of God came together for corporate or public fast such as on the day of atonement. Incidentally, the day of atonement was the only mandatory fast commanded in the Old Testament. Fasting is still widely practiced in many cultures and religions around the world, but it has largely become a neglected spiritual discipline in many churches today, especially here in North America. In Jesus' day, many Jews, including the religious leaders, typically fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. This tradition had developed from their belief that those were the days Moses ascended Mount Sinai and fasted as he met with God. Jesus doesn't command fasting. He simply assumes that it will be part of a disciple's devotion to God. He says, when you fast or some translations will will render it, whenever you fast. So what does Jesus specifically say about fasting? He says, whenever you fast, don't be sad face like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, Put oil on your head and wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people 
but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's important to note that Jesus doesn't negate the practice of fasting. He is negating doing it without a heart that matches the outward practice. Why we do what we do matters. The Jews often smeared ashes on their face as a sign of humility and contrition when fasting. These physical actions could express true repentance. But the Jewish leaders sprinkled ashes on their head and went about ungroomed and long-faced to publicize the physical hardships endured while fasting. In other words, they made sure to telecast to everyone else that they were fasting. So they looked spiritual to others. Jesus says to his disciples, don't do that. When you fast, groom yourselves normally according to cultural standards. Celebrate life while you're fasting. Others don't need to know of this spiritual discipline in your life. God will see it and he will reward you. Now, remember I like to ask questions. Do Jesus' words mean that it's always wrong to let someone know you're fasting? Well, the answer is no. The Jews, including Jesus, all knew one another were fasting on the Day of Atonement every year. If we decided to fast as a church family about an issue or decision that was uh, before us, it would be difficult to keep your fasting completely secret from the rest of the church because we're, we're doing it together. If you're fasting and you have a lunch meeting with your team at work, it may be most natural when asked uh, why you're not eating to simply say, I'm, I'm fasting today. You certainly shouldn't lie and say you're not hungry when you really are. God might even use your honest response to open a door to a spiritual conversation. The response from your coworker is likely to be, well, why? You know, or, or is it a medical thing or, or what's going on? And you could say, it's a practice I've adopted to experience God more personally in my life. There's a good chance you respond like that. There's going to be a, hey, like, like, can you tell me more about that? And who knows where that conversation could lead. Jesus' main point is not a demand for secrecy. His main point is that the motivation for fasting much, must match the outward action. Jesus says, why we do what we do matters. It doesn't fly to use fasting or any other spiritual discipline, for that matter, as a means to impress and look spiritual to others. God is to be the intended audience for acts of righteousness. He will see in secret, and he will reward us. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, Kent, Jesus has talked about reward here several times. What is the reward that Jesus speaks about related to giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting when it's done with right motives? The reward is continued development development of inner righteousness in this life and the final perfection of righteousness in the afterlife. Remember Jesus said earlier in his sermon, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. 
When we engage in almsgiving, prayer, and fasting with right motives, the result is that we'll experience a fullness of God, an abundance of life that is more satisfying than any earthly praise or acclaim you or I could ever receive. Why should we give to the poor, pray, and fast, and perform other acts of righteousness? We don't do them to gain entrance to the kingdom or to curry favor with God. We're going to strike out on both counts there. These acts are intentional ways of conforming the outward expression of our lives to the inner work of God in our hearts. Our motivation should be gratitude to the Savior who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and ushered us in to the kingdom of light. These acts are the outworking of hearts that have been and are being transformed by kingdom life within us. The important point is that kingdom righteousness is an inside-out process, which Jesus intentionally orients to counteract the hypocritical practice of operating only on the surface. Why we do what we do matters. If you were to be honest, I believe some of you here today would have to admit that you have no real desire to give to the poor, pray, or fast. If this is the case, it's important that you ask, why is that so? Perhaps it's because you've not entered the kingdom of God. You're not experiencing kingdom life and the inside-out transformation that accompanies it because you've not submitted to the rule of the king. Jesus invites you this morning to undergo a management change, to transfer control of your life from yourself to him, the prince of the kingdom of heaven. Will you choose to do that today? Others of you uh, have lost interest in giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. You accepted and embraced kingdom management sometime in the days gone by, but for whatever reason, you've reclaimed the manager's office of your life. Perhaps it happened through an unwillingness to forgive a huge wrong done to you. Will you choose to forgive just as God has chosen to forgive you? Perhaps it's due to an unwillingness to come clean about some stronghold addiction or secret sin in your life. Will you choose to expose the darkness of your heart to the light that streams from the king's eyes? Perhaps you've become a spiritual couch potato and haven't applied yourself to spiritual discipline. Athletes who fail to continue to exercise and train lose not only their muscle tone, they lose their passion for sport. The same demise can occur within us as disciples when we become spiritually complacent. If this is you, 
Jesus is inviting you to get up off your spiritual couch, take up your cross, and start intentionally following him again, conforming your outward practices to inner transformation. How will you respond? Giving to the needy, praying and fasting can be valuable in developing personal righteousness And God will reward those who practice them sincerely before him. Jesus practiced these acts of piety and spiritual disciplines, and he is our example as his disciples. But these acts can also be practiced hypocritically for the acclaim of people to look good in the eyes of others. In such cases... There is no reward from God. Why we do what we do matters. Let's pray. I'm just going to invite us to take just a few moments just in the silence to Listen to what God is speaking to each one of us through the words of his son, Jesus Christ, this morning. And with your head still bowed and your eyes closed, I simply want to call to your attention that you and I have a choice of how we're going to respond to what God just spoke to us. We can either say, that was nice, and we can walk out of this building totally unchanged, go about life as we did it this last week, or we can choose to embrace, to receive the words that God is speaking to us today, to you and to me today. And we can choose to invite him to change us, to transform us. The choice is yours and the choice is mine. 